Swift Unwrapped, a podcast about the Swift programming language and other topics in the Swift community. I'm Jesse Squires. And I'm JP Samard. And we're coming to you live three days later from WWDC <laughs> 2021. <laughs> yes, quite different than uh, the last time we, we actually recorded live at the podcast booth in WWDC. Yeah, that's right. And fond memories of that, for sure. Uh, fond memories of a lot of years of Swift th- over the years, even Swift Evolution before there was a Swift Evolution. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Swift Evolution yeah. with a lowercase e. Exactly, right. On the the blog hosted on like developer.apple.com slash blog or something, the the old Swift blog. That's right. Before they deprecated yeah. that one and, and had a forced migration to Swift.org. Exactly. And this week being WWDC 2021, there's a renewed focus on all things Swift 5.5 now that Apple has taken the time to package it up into a set of really well put together presentations from uh whole diverse cast of people who work on uh, the Swift compiler and the the related Swift technologies. And so we won't go into too much detail as to what they cover there because they do a pretty good job of presenting that information um, in a cohesive story. Uh, So um, we encourage you to watch what's new in Swift and uh, the Platform State of the Union from WWC 2021 if you haven't yet. Um, and uh, we'll we'll sort of assume that you have uh, basic working knowledge there of um, some of those fundamentals. I think the thing that's really nice about, um, I guess, all of these proposals kind of coming to a close in some way and then having these nice presentations at uh, WWDC is that it's much easier to digest and understand the full picture of Swift concurrency. Uh, We've covered some of these proposals in isolation on the show before, and it was much more abstract and I think hard to really understand the full picture if we're only talking about async await or if we're only talking about actors um, as opposed to how everything fits together. Yeah, and it's not just the language, right? For many of us, if you're writing apps for Apple platforms, or even if you're using some of the related projects, it's how those related projects, um, things like Swift Neo, or even even some of the open source projects that from the community, how they integrate things like concurrency into their APIs and into their working mental models as well, that completely changes the feel of a feature like that. And uh, seeing in a cohesive story, how all those parts play together from Apple's perspective definitely helps gel that concept in your mind in a way that seeing the concrete proposal is, you you need quite quite a lot of imagination to really understand how that's going to affect you on a daily basis. And of course, you know, what's, what's even more important there isn't to, to understand 
sort of Apple's own philosophy when it comes to this, but as a community to see how we can influence that narrative to push the envelope and to maybe satisfy other design paradigms that maybe aren't at the top of the priority list for Apple. And so we sort of have this this against the grain responsibility to sort of keep Apple honest um, when it comes to this. I, th- I think Apple does a decent job of um, keeping other platforms and uh, other sort of idioms in mind when they're designing these features. But nonetheless, uh, it's important for us to keep them honest. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point uh, with regard to the APIs and like library authors and how they integrate these features. And, you know, it's much easier to understand concurrency when you see these old previous APIs that you've used for years with, you know, completion handlers and such, either in UIKit or uh, Foundation. And you can see them transformed to take advantage of async await instead. A good example is in a URL session and seeing how you can rework how you typically use that using async await instead of the completion handlers. And it's much easier to understand that way because you've been using those APIs for so long. And then you can really see the benefits like, oh, this is so much easier to read and write and change. Yeah, and when you see language features also in isolation or, or focused around sort of the abstract, uh, what the language can do, you don't necessarily see some very concrete examples of how that will impact your day-to-day uh, or even some suggested patterns to you. So I'm thinking of some of the new foundation formatting APIs and how when you think of Swift and the builder pattern, uh, you might think of result builders. Well, Swift formatting APIs coming with iOS 15 and and company have a different type of builder pattern, more similar to to how Swift UI builds its view structs, where you can uh, keep tacking on um, dot notation modifiers to something like a, a format specifier for something like dates or or numbers, and seeing that in practice definitely influences the style of APIs that uh, that the community will build as well, um, sort of mirroring what we see from Apple. In particular, you know, when you when you look before and after what those formatting APIs look like, and especially the overhead involved in creating some of those formatters and, and passing them around, it, it becomes clear the kind of power that is accessible to you if you can really rethink an API from the ground up. In Apple's case, to go from an Objective-C legacy, and and I say legacy in a good way here, to sort of a rethinking uh, that's safer, more performant, easier to remember. It, it checks a lot of boxes and it might help you if, if you've had APIs that looked similar to uh, the pre-iOS 15 style uh, foundation formatters, well, it, you have a path, a, a, a pretty clear path forward of the kinds of API changes that you could undertake to, to fit better with the direction of, uh, of the language and the frameworks around it. Yeah, and I'd argue that it, it can go both ways. Um, either, you know, we can see uh, 
certain API designs from Apple and adopting those can be good or bad. Uh, I think in the earlier days of Swift, there was a lot of carryover from Objective-C in a lot of ways. And it was like, oh, we can actually, we can do things a little bit better. We don't have to mimic how these old foundation APIs work in Swift. We can reimagine them in, in better ways in our own code. And I feel like now we're just getting to a point where we see those examples from Apple in different ways. And so I'm hoping that will broaden the horizon for people um, when they're when they're designing things now. Yeah, and speaking of this influence going multiple ways uh, in multiple directions, now that you mentioned that, I think that this type of builder pattern, especially for formatters and, and date formatters in particular, we have seen things like that from the community. And, mm -hmm. you know, a Apple never comes out and says, you know, here's some of the prior art that we um, we used to, uh, to inspire this new API. I don't know if they do that for legal reasons, if it's part of their image where everything comes out. Um, fully clean and pristine and, and completed <laughs> straight out of the Apple press. But, right. um, you know, I'm thinking of Dave DeLong's, uh, what is it, Kronos or, or Dave DeLong's API explorations around, um, around date formatting and, uh, right. and, and right. date like manipulation. Um, but I'm sure there are others that, that I'm forgetting. And, and this is, is sort of a, a tie-in for me um, for, Apple generally not giving even the slightest nod to prior art, and sometimes they do it, um, but it's quite rare and it's it's quite specific. And maybe that's why they don't do it more broadly because they can't state like all of the possible inspirations that they had for for anything that comes out. But mm -hmm. uh, you know, specifically and it's close to my heart, uh, when Doxy was announced, or as Apple pronounces it, Doxy. Uh, there, there was no mention of Apple Doc or Jazzy or Swift Doc, you know, work from the community that maintainers and, and creators put in thousands of hours, right? And even even users and other contributors put in thousands and thousands of hours to fill in gaps that um, Apple, for whatever reason, wasn't ready to fill and, and provide themselves. Um, and there's not even the slightest nod or acknowledgement. And I, I, I tweeted something out to that respect yesterday. And then um, Tim Triesta from, from Apple commented saying, like, uh, absolutely, we're inspired and motivated by the, the great work on uh, these tools, right? And right. it sort of felt like I was forcing them to say something. And that wasn't my intention at all. It was more just recognizing that there's a lot of work that usually goes in through the community that uh, tends to be ignored when these things come out of Apple. And specifically for Doxy, I'm, I'm really excited that there's a first party solution uh, to this now and, and really hope that that's, uh, that especially with the tool becoming open source later this year, that the community will uh, align on that solution and, and that uh, the team that's working on that um, will be receptive to the directions that the community needs a tool like that to to go in as well to to support them. But yes, sort right. of several meandering thoughts put into one there. But um, that yeah. that inspiration definitely goes both ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, another good example of that inspiration is um, 
when Ryan Nystrom and I were working on IG List Kit at Instagram, and a big part of that was uh, providing models and diffing them and then generating your collection view of uh, content. And um, either the following year or maybe two years later, then we get diffable data source in UIKit uh, as part of the official uh, collection view and table view. And we know through talking with some of the people who like actually worked on that, that IGListKit was a huge inspiration for that. But of course, um, we get the acknowledgement in private or on Twitter, but not necessarily uh, in the official uh WWDC presentations, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, and and, and that yeah. that has to be enough. And I think, you know, we we can't rely on Apple for for appreciation, right? Uh, <laughs> exactly. At the end of the day, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, if, if something's right. valuable and people use it, that ought to be enough. You know, we we mentioned going back to the Swift five point five features. The name of the game here is really, uh, from a language perspective, concurrency. It's all about putting in the core of the concurrency building blocks, whether um, it's syntax, it's runtime support, it's uh, async await actors, and, uh, and types like at sendable or not types, but. Um, annotations, I suppose. It's really laying down that groundwork, but a key understanding there is, um, and, and we'll refer to Doug Greger's post in the forums from a few days ago, saying that a lot of these features aren't necessarily going to have the full set of compile time guarantees to have uh, safe by default data race free code. It'll be more that uh, this enables um, a larger class of that, but doesn't go the whole way. And that'll really be more of the story for Swift 6, where a lot of the runtime checks that are being introduced in Swift 5.5 should really become hard compile time checks. And uh, maybe some of the larger migrations that need to happen uh, might be reserved for sort of a major language version. One of the key goals that, that Doug lays out is to avoid some of the boil the ocean type uh, migrations that were needed in Swift 2 to 3, where everything was renamed and you couldn't um, migrate things piecemeal. That one of the driving goals here is that uh, you can adopt some of these features incrementally and locally so that you don't have to migrate um, the entirety of your code base to be able to benefit from uh, one small part of it. Right. And he acknowledges that the Swift ecosystem today is substantially greater than uh, what it was back in the Swift 2 and uh, Swift 3 days. You know, aside from maybe a couple of very large companies um, that are heavily reliant on Objective-C, I don't know of many that um, are not fully embracing Swift or even 100% Swift at this point. Um, And so if they are not careful, um, they're basically going to break everyone's code base. But, you know, luckily there is a very good infrastructure in place now to mix uh, different Swift versions. And so I think that investment that they made early on is going to pay off. Yeah. Yeah. And really breaking all of Swift in the 2020s uh, has a very different um, scale of impact as breaking all of Swift in the 2010s. Yeah. And it reminds me of the 
memory exclusivity enforcement, um, which happened, I guess, around Swift 4 or maybe it was Swift 5. Before, you know, they were laying a lot of the groundwork. Um, and then at some point, they kind of flipped the switch to turn memory exclusivity enforcement on. And then you would get some compile time errors. And I think they had some optional flags where you could opt in or opt out early on. Um, but it's going to be a similar situation with Swift 6 once compile time checks for concurrency uh, are enabled. Oh, yeah. Um, and one last thing that I wanted to say about um, concurrency, and especially in Swift 5.5, is you know we mentioned um, the, the great collection of WWC sessions and content that's available. In particular, the community has come out with and has consistently for years at this point come out with excellent guides um, to really gives you a, a, a bird's eye view um, of what's in <laughs> what's in various Swift versions. And of course, what comes to mind here is Paul Hudson's "What's New in Swift 5.5." Um, but you know, there are, there are many other guides like these. Uh, so check it out in the show notes and please uh, try to read that as well if you're if you're trying to get a sense of overall uh, what this is going to look like. Yeah, and uh, speaking of community guides, there's also a lot of folks tweeting about new features in Xcode 13. Um, it brings a lot of really nice quality of life improvements um, to Swift. Um, the most notable for me are the, the broader and more intelligent uh, autocomplete features. Um, for example, I think the f my favorite that I've seen so far is when you go to write a switch statement, uh, Xcode will now autocomplete every case for you, um, which is super convenient because it's so easy um, to forget a case um, until you hit compile um, and get that warning. Or if you if your enum has a lot of cases, it's just very tedious to write by hand. Yeah, I think there's a category of things that used to be fixits um, that once your editor sort of became idle, then if you waited a few seconds, the compiler would then catch up and say after it's done indexing or whatever it was doing taking a breath and saying, uh, hey, would you like me to fill in all the cases in the switch statement for you? And things like that are being brought up earlier in in the um, editing flow so that surfacing that during autocomplete instead of after you sort of wait and twiddle your thumbs for a bit and then see that suggestion come through mm -hmm. um, really m makes the whole thing feel snappier and more lightweight. And broadly speaking, there are more of these type of autocomplete um, capabilities are being added, right? Where if you reference a type that isn't available, um, that isn't being imported in your current file, autocomplete will suggest adding the import automatically for you, which is quite nice. Presumably, this only works with frameworks that come from Apple, I imagine, that are already accessible to your app by default, or, or maybe it also includes frameworks that your current target is um, is already added as a dependency. But there's some other sort of superpowers that are being added to, to autocomplete. Things like automatically spelling out some of the more verbose things like if let um, unwrapping or optional binding. Things like uh, iterating over the singular form of a plural form collection. So like if you have an array of names, four name and names, 
And one of the most interesting and surprising ones is if you type out an import that isn't already in your dependencies, that is referencing a package that isn't already in your dependencies, such as import argument parser, if you're writing a CLI tool, this will tie into package collections, which has been uh, going through the rounds of Swift evolution a few times already. And um, Xcode will try to f try to resolve that framework name with a uh, possible package that's available in a package dependency. And by default, Xcode will ship with all the with a package collection that includes all of the Apple uh, namespaced open source projects like Swift numerics, um, Swift collections, Swift algorithms, uh, argument parser, and I think you'll be able to add your own custom collections. So if you have a number of closed source packages that your company uses, or uh, maybe we'll see sort of curated package, package collections from the community, you might be able to add those and, and get that auto add dependency functionality uh, as well. Yeah, I wonder if this will be a, a good way to discover new packages. I'm assuming that's one of the, the motivations here as well. Yeah, perhaps. But in the source editor, you sort of have to know what it's called um, to even sure. see it. Sure, sure. Right. But if you go to that Swift package collections UI, I suppose, yeah, you, you could see other packages in that collection. You know, search for YAML or something and, and see a, a YAML decoder pop up. Yeah, right. Shifting gears a bit, as you may have noticed from uh, this episode's title, uh, this is going to be our last show. We are tearing down and de-knitting uh, the Swift Unwrap podcast. Yeah, this it's been... A wild ride, I guess. We've had a lot of guests on the show that we would love to thank uh, for being here over the years. Yeah, we started this uh, podcast uh, at the beginning of 2017, so it's been a number of years. We are initially doing um, a weekly or bi-weekly episodes. Um, you know, the, the frequency of, of changes and, and news and excitement in Swift in th those early days was uh, quite a lot. Um, and I guess Swift was announced in 2016, uh, right? Or maybe it was open sourced then? I can't remember. It, it was open sourced in 2016. It was announced in 2014. That's wow. been seven, seven years. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's crazy to, to think about. Yeah, that's when WWDC was still at the Moscone Center in downtown San Francisco. Um, I was actually there at that one in 2014 when it was announced. Uh, I could walk to the conference center from the office. Yeah, I was at AltConf um, watching uh, the presentation on a movie theater screen yeah. when uh, uh, Chris Latner and, and company uh, did the, the big showcase. And I think most people in the room sort of looked around with their jaws uh, hanging on the floor. Yeah. No one was really talking much. I think everyone was still sort of processing what had happened. Right. And it's been quite the evolution process uh, over the years just to see the, the impact of the language and, and how the community has really become a core part of the language and the ecosystem. It's, it's, it's been fun. Yeah, and when we were starting the show, um, one of the main reasons why we Jesse and I wanted to start this show is that in 2017, there were a lot of um, Apple developer-focused podcasts. 
But Swift had been around for um, over two years at that point, and uh, we really wanted to focus more on the language aspects, not necessarily because we think that's the most important aspect of programming is uh, great language design and we're, um, you know, language nerds through and through, which maybe we are, but it's more that... um, we thought there was important discourse uh, that could happen specifically about the language to complement the rest of what the community was already producing. Um, and so that's that's sort of what we wanted to do. And at the time, um, there really weren't all that many other shows specifically about Swift, the open source projects around it, uh, Swift Evolution, etc. But that's really changed over the years. Um, yeah. We have a lot of great either podcasts or video series or blog articles or books um, on that, that are more focused on, on what we're setting out to provide, which is really discourse and, um, and discussion around the language itself. And so the, the need for something like Swift Unwrapped um, isn't exactly what we felt it was uh, in 2017 as well. Um, and we get great value out of listening to shows like Swift by Sandel, and um, the, there's a long list, so we're not we're not going to 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 have an exhaustive Swift statement here. <laughs> um, but uh, there's there's a lot of other um, sources of content now that uh, we don't feel like it's as important for us to be doing this on a regular basis. Yeah, and I think um, you know not only that, but I think combined with um, you know, various uh, life changes for both of us. It's, you know, also been harder to uh, record episodes regularly and things like that. And uh, certainly the the pandemic disrupted a a lot of that. But uh, I think we feel pretty good about ending the show here and knowing that there's plenty of other great content that's like still being produced now. Um, In fact, I would say much better than uh, we have done in a lot of respects. Um, And so... Yeah, I concur. (laughs) uh, So, yes, other podcasts, other video series like Swift Talk, for example, um, to name another. And really just a lot of great um, bloggers. And so there's a lot of resources now. Uh, It's a totally different landscape than it was a few years ago. I mean, especially before Swift was open source. You know, those those early years were just so much different. And it's really, I still can't believe it's been seven years. Like, that is just incredible to me. <laughs> it makes me feel so old because it doesn't feel like well, that we long. are. <laughs> <laughs> we're some of the old timers. We started when right. when you had to write apps in Objective-C. Right, right. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get email for that. But uh, <laughs> we we wanted to thank a lot of people for making this show a reality and, and making this happen. First off, the Spec Network, Sarah and Bryn and others at that network, they provided us with a studio, with editing, with a, a lot of of things that we uh, we really appreciated and made this show possible and, and probably helped it to, to keep it going for, for longer than we would have. Well, honestly, we wouldn't have started it if it weren't for them. That's true. So a huge thank you to, to everyone at Spec. Yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, really, you know, going back to how how things have changed, I mean, we used to go to a studio in downtown San Francisco and 
we even invited some of the Swift Core team there once. And, uh, you know, now we're doing this remotely because of the pandemic and other reasons. And um, yeah, it's just been, it's been great. And I think without Specs support, we definitely couldn't have gotten this far. Sponsors too, a lot of great yeah. sponsors over the years. Guests, as Jesse mentioned, right? And it's everyone from members of the Swift Core team to members of the community who took time um, to, to share their their knowledge and wisdom and hot takes with us, right. uh, <laughs> everything. Yeah. And last but not least, thank you, the listeners, uh, for listening all these years. We really appreciate it. And um, I hope uh, we'll see you on the interwebs. Or eventually in person. Looking forward to that. <laughs> right. Or perhaps at WWDC 2022. That would be great. I still have some uh, some Swift Unwrapped stickers I can hand out then. There we go. We'll have a long tail of sticker distribution. And the right. show will live on. <laughs> and on that note, thanks for listening to our final episode. And um, until we meet again. Bye.